We're going to be in two places. Let me just turn this on here. There we go. Two places. I'm going to, you don't have to turn to the first one. We're going to be in Exodus 20, verse 13, and then you'll want to turn to 22, Exodus 22, 2 to 3. Gun control, the statist protections of fallen man. The title sort of preaches itself, but we'll sort of explore that tonight. And we'll look at Exodus 22, verses 2 to 3. So Exodus 20, verse 13 says, You shall not murder. That is in the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment. And go ahead and make sure you're there. In Exodus 22, I'm going to read 2 and 3. These are the words of God. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owes nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for granting us life in your Son. We thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit so that we may properly discern between good and evil. Train us, we ask, to know your word and apply your word. We desire to draw near to you and ask that you would draw near to us. We honor you in this gathering of the saints tonight. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So I imagine at this point you have probably caught on to something important as it pertains to our battle against humanism, and that is the fact that the greatest expression, the greatest expression of humanism can be found in the collective status regime. That's the greatest uh, expression of humanism. It always ends up in a big, bloated, ginormous state uh, collective ideology. So echoing the Tower of Babel, when men try to make a name for themselves, the path that they will inevitably choose each and every time in order to accomplish this particular lust is the power state, the power state. Because fallen men desire the path of enlightenment, this rejection of God, they will always prefer the power religion. So the power religion goes with the power state, because we know, as Christians, we know that all law is religious in nature. It's all ethically connected. When you say this, not that, you are making a religious claim. So the power state always goes with the power religion, and together they believe that might makes right, that those at the top that are in positions of authority, if you will, are there because they are stronger. So those at the bottom are to simply submit to them because the all-knowing, the all-seeing state is their Lord protector. Now some call that survival of the fittest. The big dog's on top because he's stronger, he's better. He's genetically more powerful. That's what we're going to get into next week with, with racism. In, in the humanistic relationship they're in. But the Bible calls all of this idolatry. So basically, each week we have considered 
um, the various doctrines of humanism and what, what we call the politics of humanism. And essentially, each and every week, we have, to one degree or another, um, talked about the role of the civil magistrate. So whether it's talking about sexuality, education, war, immigration, um, this is important because the civil magistrate does play a major role in society. So we are, we have to repeat this often because we have strong criticism for the state, but we need to keep this in mind. We definitely believe, while we are not arguing for a complete eradication of all civil rulers, that's not our position. When we're fighting the politics of humanism, we're not saying that we want there to be no such thing as civil rulers. The, the covenantal jurisdiction of the magistrate is laid out in various places by God in Scripture, most notably being Romans chapter 13. So we very much appreciate and understand the role of the magistracy. We, we hold to that. We think it's a godly, righteous endeavor for leaders to, to rule righteously. So we definitely believe that the Bible, <laughs> we, we believe that having a sound ethical justice system is in place is very important. It's incredibly important. And we also believe that the Bible teaches us a lot about things like due process, the role of the jury, the role of witnesses, the role of judges who are to oversee the process of justice, if you will. However, we have a caveat. We do not believe the state can and should be given unending power. There is a limit to the power of the magistrate. Nor do we see the state as being a suitable replacement for God. Now, keep that in mind as we talk about the issue of gun control, which I was looking at the history there's a lot of historical things that have happened, and I just didn't deem it worthy enough to share. If you want information on that, I can give it to you. There's, I found a really good site that had a lot of those things, especially since the, the, the dawn of the Second Amendment in 1791-ish. I may have that date wrong. So in line with much of Scripture, we know that the state needs to be prophetically rebuked and brought back to its proper jurisdiction. So no that we don't believe the state has unending power. We, don't, we reject the Orwellian notion of an all-seeing, all-knowing state. Now, we do all of this. Why? Why do we even talk about stuff like this? Well, because it's a gospel issue. The way the magistracy is carried out must be consistent with Christ, who is our king. Kings and rulers of the earth are commanded in Psalm 2 to pay tribute, to pay homage, to kiss the Son, of Je that is Jesus Christ. In their rulership, they are to obey Jesus Christ. And since they have been given the sword of justice, this has to be done in accordance with what God says. I don't know if you've seen recently, uh, it just, just came to mind, some of the t topics about the Second Amendment. It's always in the news. Gun control is always going to be in the news because there's always going to be something happen and it gets just this, it's never the guy who stops the, you know, the good guy who stops the bad guy. The most recent case, and, I, and I, it slips me where this was at, but you'll know, you probably saw it, where the, the, the security guard, who was black, let's, we'll cover this issue next week, but he was a security guard who apprehended the criminal at a nightclub. The police came and shot him. Okay, so they came later. The, the, the bad guy 
was apprehended and the good guy was shot and killed. You remember the, the man who was shot in his own apartment by a police officer in Dallas not too long ago. So these issues aren't going to go away. And sadly, as has been the case of this whole series, the church has refused to address the issues. So that's, what, that's sort of what we do around here. <laughs> we address the issues. So to say, to say that the, the, the way a, a, governor, a government should be structured, to say, to say that the magistrate has no um, bearing, nothing to do with the gospel of kingdom, is to truncate the gospel and hand the house keys over to the humanists. And that's essentially what we've done in all areas of life. We have handed these things over, and we need to take them back. They belong to us, and we need to, to use them. So we must not do this. We must not give away the keys to the, to the house. Now, tonight we're going to cover the issue of gun control. And, and again, this is undoubtedly the status protections of fallen man. If you want protection in your life, you can't have it. You have to have it provided for you. And that's the key issue. Because humanism relies on fallen man to be the determiner of good and evil, rather than trusting Jesus Christ, the fallen man must figure out a way to, to make sure his, consist, uh, his constituency falls in line. So how do you achieve this status vision of, of getting all the guns, if you will? Well, in order for the collective to, see, to succeed, the individual has to be eradicated. In order for this 1984 Orwellian nightmare to happen, you've seen the shirts, Make, make, Orwell, make Orwell Fiction Again, <laughs> That's a great shirt. We should all be wearing those. Um, in order for that to happen, there has to be this, this bait-and-switch tactic. So you are incompetent. All of you sitting in here, I'm I hate to tell you this, but you are incompetent. Me too. We are incompetent to defend ourselves, to protect ourselves, and so you must hand that responsibility over. In order for the collective to succeed, the individual has to be stripped of his rights, must be eradicated. So there's no room for man to have liberty, and there is no room for man to determine righteousness based on God's law. We can't have that sort of thing. So this means that men and women, we are stripped of our individual right and duty to defend life, to defend liberty, and to defend our property. This is basically yanked out of the free man's hands and put instead in the hands of bureaucrats and police. As Christians who worship the Lord Jesus Christ, we say that this will not suffice. Whenever we have a school shooting, many of those, I'm against school shootings. I'm also against kids in schools. Um, but the, we've already covered that topic. But whenever there's a school shooting, this, this inevitably what will happen, those who are affected by this absolutely terrible and wicked thing, this tragedy, they will cry out to their savior state and they will say things like, you've probably heard these interviews, why won't the president do something? Why is it that Congress just will, they must act now. This is salvation by law, right? The, the highest appeal that they can come up with is the all-knowing, all-seeing state. So from the state, it's perceived, comes salvation and restoration. It's the only way we're going to get it. Salvation by law. Speaking of the Orlando nightclub shooting a couple of years ago, President Barack Obama then, he offered his condolences to the, to the victims, and here's how he ended his speech. I went and did 
looked at that mess this week. He said this, quote, This massacre is therefore a further reminder of how easy it is for someone to get their hands on a weapon that lets them shoot people in a school or in a house of worship or a movie theater or in a nightclub. And we have to decide if that's the kind of country we want to be. And to actively do nothing is a decision as well. End quote. Now, two years later, in June of 2015, so the Orlando was, was in 2013, this was in 2015. President Obama responded to, if you recall, the horrific tragedy, the shooting at the church in Charleston, South Carolina. He ended his speech like this, quote, we don't have all the facts, but we do know that once again, innocent people were killed in part because someone who wanted to inflict harm had no trouble getting their hands on a gun, end quote. In none of these speeches was the depravity of man invoked I mean, we know that that's not going to happen, but the depravity of man, the, the wickedness of the heart, the only solution being the gospel. So you, 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 there have been tragedies. These things are awful. They happen all the time. You can ban guns like in the UK and you have, what do you have? Knife, you have stabbings all the time. Now, now, liberals will shout at conservatives, and they will say, guns must be banned. We're tired of the shootings. And then conservatives will, will pomp their chest and say, you know, come take them. Come take our guns. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Now, the political rhetoric surrounding this is oftentimes completely insufferable. And as Christians who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians who are commanded to teach the nations how to obey Christ, we must offer them something better than this. Better than the punchy short lines that we offer back and forth. So to the teaching and the testimony we must go. What do we think of guns? What are we to think of self-defense? Come in a little closer here. I feel like we're taking off. Are we on a, are we on a jet plane here? The fifth commandment or the sixth commandment, I mean, says, you shall not murder. The King James Version says, thou shalt not kill. The word for murder and kill is ratza, and it carries this idea of premeditated killing. Premeditated killing. It's, it's unjustifiable murder, the taking of innocent life. This is an unjust act of violence towards someone. Okay? Things like capital punishment, Things like self-defense, as we'll see, and even, even things like just war, which we covered a couple weeks ago, that's not included in this particular commandment because God's law draws distinctions between these things. There's a distinction to be made. I've unfortunately had this discussion before uh, at a previous church. I had a gentleman who say that you're, you're advocating for self-defense. You're advocating that you have the right to protect yourself, but the Bible says you shall not kill. You should be against the death penalty. You're, you're against abortion, yes, but you should be against the death penalty because thou shalt not kill. This type of infancy thinking, infantile thinking, is not going to do. The Bible lays out clear parameters for all of these types of things. So we'd have to do the hard work of actually learning from it. Now, when the Bible says you shall not murder, that's the negativism of the law, right? You shall not. You shall not blank. Now, the positive of the law is the reverse. 
you shall defend, you shall protect life. Built in God's commandments, there's the negativism of the law and the positivism of the law. You shall not murder. You shall defend and protect life. See, God's prescription for what it means to be kingdom people is for us to defend the lives of our neighbors and the lives of our families. So we are called to live peaceable, peaceable lives, right? Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. We are supposed to be people of peace. We were, as Jordan would say, don't at me here, but we, we, uh, we in the Garwood House have been listening to Christmas music going on three weeks now. Don't judge me. All right, but one of the things, uh, there are several songs that are great. Obviously, you know, we love Joy to the World here. Joy to the World is one of my favorite hymns. Um, I, I don't remember, I think it's the Do You Hear What I Hear song. I don't know if that's the title, but there's one line that stu stuck out to me today, and it said, Pray for peace everywhere. Pray for peace everywhere. We are, we are people of peace. So we have to not give off this vibe that we're people of aggression. We want our guns, and so we're just going to yell and scream and flash our NRA cards. That's not going to work. We are to be peaceable people, right? Peace so long as it depends on you, as the principle Paul mentions in Romans 13. So we are to be peaceable. And, and we're not going to be that way, though, and, and not, not just how we refuse to um, be oppressors, right? We're not going to pompously punch our chests and say, look at us, we don't go around killing people. That's not enough. That's not enough to obeying God's commandments. We have to stand for the oppressed. We have to interpose for the oppressed. See, this means that we each have a responsibility. Listen carefully. Each of us has an, uh, an individual responsibility as free men and women to seek to prevent the injury and assault of other people. We are commanded to do that. See, when we refuse to protect the defenseless, we are refusing to obey God. When we refuse to protect the defenseless, we are refusing to obey God. When the church refuses to stand up for their preborn neighbor, the church is disobeying God. See, this means that each of us are called to be a police force. Think about that. Each of us are called to be a police force. We are not to farm out our obedience to the Sixth Commandment to bureaucrats with uniforms and guns. You want to talk about the meat of the word? Let's talk about police. We are not. We are, we are called to step in, interpose for the defenseless, right? That's, that's built in the Sixth Commandment. We are not to farm out that responsibility to bureaucrats with uniforms and guns. Listen to what Rush Juni says. He says, quote, The law asks two things of every man. The law asks two things of every man. Obedience and enforcement. Obedience and enforcement. To obey a law means, in effect, to enforce it in one's own life and in one's own community. God's law is not a private matter. It is not for us to obey personally simply because we like it, meanwhile leaving other men to follow whatever law they choose. Don't miss this. The law is valid for all. <laughs> 
The law is valid for all. To obey it means to accept a universal order as binding on us and upon all men. Obedience, therefore, requires that we seek a total enforcement of the law. End quote. None of you, children, you too, you are to defend your brother and your sister from harm, which also means you are not to inflict harm upon them. So the whole hitting your sister and hitting your brother thing, that's not going to fly in God's law. Your job is to protect. Your, I'm going to talk to you kids a little bit more later toward the end, but your job is to protect, to defend. See, so we're supposed to obey it, yes, but we're also supposed to enforce it. That's what God's law says we're to do. What Rush Tuni is arguing for and what we must insist upon, listen, is a decentralized, individualized responsibility for justice, not a collective one which strips man of his individual responsibility. That's what we need to emphasize. We have said over and over again, we are past the year point. We're walking into year two now as a church family. We have said from the very beginning that our role and your role as an individual and our role together is to equip men, women, and children to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. And that means we have something to say about self-defense. We have something to say about the, the state. We have something to say about what it means to, to be a police. So each person has a police power. All of you have a police power. And in order to have a godly social order, we must each take this responsibility in defending each other. This is simply what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this said in churches. It's, it's just ad nauseum. It's almost, it's almost getting ridiculous. Churches, nothing wrong with mission statements, but when your mission statement is to love God and love others and you don't actually know what that means, you have a problem. How do you practically love your neighbor? Oh, well, we pray for them. Okay, good. That's good. That's a good thing. Does it stop there? <laughs> do you actually want to talk about strategic ways to, to abolish the police state? and give responsibilities back to men. You ever watch some of the old shows? I can't remember. I just was thinking about this recently. I forget what we were watching. But it was this, this um, it, was like a, it was an older show. And you think about, I think it was older. Maybe it's newer, I don't know. But like, there's like the one police officer in the middle of the town square. And like, he's the one. There's not, you know, 75 of them on the police force driving around in militarized tanks, what we call cars. And it's always like the one sheriff in town. And he acted like the fire department. If there was a problem, you called him. But he isn't out harassing people. See, we, we want to love other people. So we have things that, that God's word says and God's word teaches that we need to be able to, to do, to, to implement so to, to love your neighbor isn't simply just not murdering him. That's good, right? Don't kill someone. That's not the only thing it means to love your neighbor. It also is seeking, the seeking out and the, the arresting of the murderer or, or, or the perpetrator, ensuring that he's put on trial. And if he's a murderer, that, that he's condemned to death for his crimes against God and the victim. That's what it means to love someone. 
You want to love someone? Treat them lawfully. Treat them lawfully. See, loving God and loving neighbor requires this of us. The gospel compels us. The gospel compels us to seek justice for our neighbor. That's what love is. Now, all that to say, I'm going to take a few minutes, and and I want you to look at your Bible if you have it with you. Make sure you're looking at it, because I'm really going to examine this very closely, and I want you to see something. In Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3, we have these laws of of restitution, and there are two examples given to what true self-defense looks like. So I'm going to read those, and I want you to sort of focus on them while I'm talking so that you can see what I'm saying. Exodus 22, verse 2. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the word caught can also be found. The word found, those two words work perfectly in Hebrew. If the thief is found or caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. So there are two scenarios here. Follow along. There are two scenarios, both dealing with a thief looking to steal. There's a situation, a crime that's hovering over this matter. But there are two differing situations. In verse 2, look look at verse 2. We have a thief. He's caught or found breaking into a home. Now in Hebrew, it's actually literally digging in. He's digging into a home. So he's digging through the mud walls of a home. That's how that we are to understand that. It's a mud wall. He's just he's digging in. Maybe he has a tool. He's quietly working his way into the home. He's digging into the house. The context is pretty straightforward. It's obvious. He's in the process of entering a home that is not his, and he's digging in somewhere around the house. It's not his home. He's trying to get in. Because if it's your home, do you ever dig through the wall? No, you go through the front door. Thieves don't usually do that. So the homeowner, the homeowner here is alerted. The homeowner knows that there's a threat, and he responds to the threat with lethal force. Probably didn't have a Glock back then, but he responded with lethal force. The perpetrator is killed. There's no blood guiltiness. He's not guilty of murder. He is guilty of defending himself and his family. Okay? So the Bible here teaches the principle of self-defense. The right and responsibility to protect one's self and his family from imminent harm and danger. That's what self-defense is. Now, nowhere, look at your Bible. Nowhere in that verse does it say it's dark, right? Did you see the word dark? No. Okay. We know from Job 24, which was read earlier, That evil is more comfortable doing its bidding at nighttime. That's pretty clear. We know that. At nighttime, why? Because it's less visible. You're more stealthy. That's kind of how sin works. But just note, I'm going to come back to this. Just note that verse 2 does not tell us that it's it's dark out. Many commentators simply assume that the difference here is nighttime and daytime. But I don't think that's the main point. I'm going to show you why I don't think that. And you're going to not treat me like a heretic. Because I found no one to corroborate what I was saying. So, we'll see. (laughs) Don't write me off yet. Now, it's not terribly unreasonable to assume that in verse 2 we're talking about a nighttime break-in. It's not not wrong to assume that. But I just don't think that's the whole picture. That's not the whole point. Look at verse 3. 
In verse 3 it says, but if the sun has risen on him, which literally means the sun has shone on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account, right? Now, as I was studying this, I noticed pretty much all the commentators that I looked at, I looked at quite a few, they, they all believe that these two verses are parenthetical. So you have Moses writing verse 1, and then he sort of slips in this parenthetical remark here, and then at the end of verse 3, he kind of goes back to his thing. Now, I, I hate to do this, but Calvin thought, John Calvin thought it was a, just a side note. I don't think he's correct. I don't like saying that, because the man was a brilliant genius, and I'm not. So, but I don't think he's right, and, and he didn't really say a ton about it. He thought it was a side note. Moses is writing verse 1. Verse 2 and 3a are sort of like just this footnote, if you will. Um, I think it ties into verses 1 and 3 and 4. I think it all ties together. So I don't think it's parenthetical. Um, Gary North, I went to look at what Gary North says. He doesn't even really touch the issue, not in his Tools of Dominion commentary on Exodus. He didn't touch it. Rushed to and he said very little about it. Very little. He just sort of passing comment about this. So again, if what I'm saying is wrong, just know that I tried and I couldn't find anybody to corroborate what I was thinking, and that's on me. Here's what I think. The normal interpretation of this passage is this. When it's dark and the thief breaks in, you can defend yourself, and if the perp dies, you are not to be charged with murder. Okay? You are simply defending your castle. This is where the castle doctrine comes in, the idea of defending your property, defending your home. So th that's true, that's good, and that's right. I'm on board with that. Fine. It's very much consistent with, with Scripture and other places. But then it's normally taught that if it's daytime, because in verse 3 it says the sun shone on him, if it's daytime and the thief is breaking in, you have to make sure that you're not shooting your cousin Vinny who's just there trying to make a sandwich. Poor Vinny if it's nighttime. See, th that's the normal interpretation. So when it's dark and the thief is breaking in, he's, he's assuming that someone is home, because usually people are home at night, right? That's when we sleep, typically. So he, he knows that. So now he's just assumed liability. He knows that. They're, they're home. I'm breaking in. There's a chance that I'm going to die. He is liable to injury. Now, when it's daylight and a thief is breaking in, he's assuming that probably no one is home, and therefore he isn't liable to injury. In other words, in daylight, you have a more reasonable chance. This is the normal interpretation of this passage, I'm just telling you. You have a more reasonable chance to confirm the threat to your life. You can double-check that it's not Vinny making a BLT. That's good. I'm just not happy with leaving the interpretation like that as it is. I think it's right. I think there's good sense in thinking this, um, but I, I don't see it connecting to the context. Too many of the commentators said, well, this is just a sidebar conversation. I don't think it's sidebar. Okay, here's what I mean. The context in verse 1 is about what? Theft. It's about theft. Someone, the, the first verse describes what happens when a thief steals something, and then what happens if a thief sells that? What happens? Well, he has to pay it back fivefold or fourfold, depending on the animal. But the context doesn't change. We're still talking about a thief, okay? Remember, not to insult your intelligence here, <laughs> bear with me, but thieves steal property. That's what they do. So thieves, don't forget the context. We're talking about a thief. If he breaks into a house, 
He has crossed the threshold. He was not invited. And interestingly enough, the crime of theft had not yet been committed, did it? What was he doing? He was found doing what? Breaking in, digging in. He wasn't even, he wasn't caught leaving. He was caught breaking in. He did not steal anything yet. So the crime hadn't been committed. The man was attempting theft. He, he was digging to the walls, but he was positioning himself to be in harm's way. So he was on his way to commit a crime, and since people don't normally just start digging in a new entrance to a house, <laughs> the reality is the man's intentions here aren't entirely clear. What's this man doing? So if we say that it's dark, again, that's probably the case because of verse 3. That's fine. We don't know what kind of harm that he, he's seeking to inflict. Is he there to take some money? Is he there to steal a sandwich? Is he there to destroy the family? We don't know. In other words, discerning his intention is nearly impossible. You cannot do the discerning of a man's intention when the threat is immediate. If someone walks in here, we don't know who they are. All of us are going to stop. Wait, whoa, hold on. Like, we're public. This is a public space. We invite people to come and join us. But we're, we're, we're going to stop and pause for a minute. But if you hear gunfire outside, suddenly, I'm done preaching. Some of us are moving into action. <laughs> You can't discern the threat. So we don't know, and therefore we do not have the time or context to wait and see what his intentions are. He is bent on committing a crime, he potentially hurting the man or his family. Now he's liable to destruction. There's no blood guiltiness on his account. That's how we should read that verse. But this is where it gets interesting. In verse 3, we have a different situation. Again, we don't know if it was dark in verse 2. Even if it isn't dark and someone's breaking in, a man has a right to defend himself and his neighbor. The protection of life in the sixth commandment will back him in this. But look at verse 3. It says, but if the sun has risen on him. Here's what I think. I think we're dealing with a thief who has already committed the crime. Think about it. Going with the presupposition that it's dark in verse 2, which is, again, good and fine and most likely the case, verse 3 explains what happens when the sun has shone on the criminal, meaning that, that we can assume he stole something at nighttime, but the morning has come and the crime is finished. I think that's a euphemism in Hebrew. The, the, the crime's already committed. The thief, because we're talking about scenarios of restitution here. The thief is made in the image of God, right? He's made in the image of God. He's not to be killed, for that's not the proper measure for the law. That's not the lex talionis, the eye for the, for the eye. Instead, the rest of verse 3 it tells us, I think the rest of verse 3 defends my thesis here. He's supposed to make restitution. See, this isn't just about a thief breaking in at night over, over against a thief breaking in during the day. That's what most of the commentators I looked at said. Oh, there's a difference. A day you have more discernment. Okay, that's true. But that's not the only thing going on here. This is about a thief who is attempting to commit a crime over against a thief who has already committed the crime. See, self-defense applies in daytime or nighttime. It doesn't really matter. 
And yes, in the day, we can literally see things better than at the, the night, yes, especially with mud homes without electricity. But the point God's law makes is that regarding the crime of theft, he doesn't receive the death penalty. You can't just go around killing thieves. That's and in biblical law, I've heard Christians say this. It's, well, biblical law says that we th- if you steal something, you cut their hand off. No, that would be Sharia law. Nowhere does God's law tell you that. This is restitution. See, you can and should and are commanded to defend yourself, to defend your family from the intentions of a criminal, which is oftentimes unknown. But you can't just go kill a thief because he stole something from you. He's to make restitution, which is what the rest of verse 3 says. Now, why bring all of this up? Well, as I've said it before, the Bible says that we're to love God and our neighbors, right? We're to love God and our neighbors. We're supposed to value God above all. And in light of that, we're supposed to value our neighbor's life. That's the summation of God's law. And this is what gospel people do. When we're transformed by the Spirit and the gospel message has taken us captive, we live a certain way, right? We live differently. We, we live inside a social order that's dictated by the kingdom of God, not the world. And the way we live is informed by God's word, God's law. So the in, issue of gun control falls right into this. Now, stay, I'm going to say this as plainly as I know how. Gun control removes the right and duty of citizens to protect themselves, not just from murderers and those seeking to, to do harm, but government officials who desire a statist hell. That's the principle from God's word. Gun control, removing guns, all these top-down, bureaucratic-imposed restrictions. Go to California. What can you can't carry? You can't do There's all these loopholes. If you do have a gun, there's only a certain amount of bullets you can have. The magazine can only hold a certain amount, right? There's all these restrictions. All that does is remove the right and duty and responsibility of you as an individual to protect yourself, your neighbor, your family, your children, not just from would-be murderers or would-be anybody who's seeking to do harm, but also status governments. Now, I'm not... I'm not going to get into the whole automatic weapon ban and whatnot. I, I'm in, here's what I'm in favor. I'm in favor of a gospel-saturated culture and, and people that's, that's saturated to such a degree that men beat their guns into plowshares. That's the, that's the post-millennial vision, right? I mean, that's, that's why I'm post I see that happening. That's a prophecy that's going to take place in history. We can look to that. But you don't solve the problem... Right? So we're not naive. We have this vision. We know where history is going. But that doesn't mean that, you know, that, there, that we ignore the fact that there are people who legitimately want to do us harm. But you don't solve any of these problems of people wanting to do harm by removing the, the, thing that a man, the one thing a man has, self-defense. See, disarming a populace, or in our case, restricting the populace from having military-grade weapons and thus giving the police these weapons isn't going to solve the issue. See, the gospel is supposed to change people, and it's the gospel that gives men and women self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And that's the only way the problem is going to be solved. And in the meantime, the Bible does tell us that we have the right to defend our life, our, our liberty, and our property. 
to defend our own person, to defend our family, to defend our neighbor, all of this in pursuit of the dominion mandate, which means that it is absolutely imperative that we plan for the future. Listen, and plan, have a plan to protect that plan for the future. So we're not going to argue over the Second Amendment. Oh, back then they had muskets. They don't have, you know, double stack glocks. We're not going to argue about that, though we believe in the Second Amendment and think it's a good and righteous decree. But we're Christians first, which means that we want to defend the lives of our neighbors. So listen, you want to get really practical here? If you don't own a firearm, buy one, please. Buy one. Buy several if you don't own one. If you don't know how to use one, I'll teach you. I get my father-in-law down here in a heartbeat. He'll, he'll show you how to clean a gun, all of it. Okay? You need to have a plan how to protect your family, how to protect yourself. You need to have a plan. That's a good and righteous pursuit. Get trained in being, what's, being aware of what's happening around you. So if you go to a restaurant and you're sitting down, be, be alert, be trained. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't worry yourself to death. Jesus tells us a lot about worry. But be smart, be trained. Study how to use a gun in a way that aligns with Scripture. How do you defend yourself? See, we cannot think that we're obeying the Sixth Commandment by simply refraining from killing someone. No, obeying the Sixth Commandment means you better know how to protect the life of your neighbor when she's threatened. So get a gun. And, and when thinking about the future, listen, parents, this is for you children too. But parents, this is something we have to do diligently because no one else is going to do it. I mean, they might hear it here, but... No one else is going to teach them this. We need, we need to be teaching our children the biblical obligation to resist unrighteousness and rebel against all forms of tyranny. Children, you need to know that. You have a biblical command, lots of them behind you, to resist unrighteousness, and you have a duty and an obligation to rebel against unjust, wicked tyrants. See, God forbid we Christians find ourselves in a defensive war in our own nation. God forbid. But it wouldn't be the first time. It wouldn't be the first time. So we must plan, we must prepare, and in the meantime, we must be zealous about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that security can really only come from you. Bureaucratic thugs with military weapons who are oftentimes minutes away won't help us obey your commandment. Your law gives us responsibility, and your spirit gives us the power to obey. We do want the lives of our, our children, our friends, and our families, and our neighbors to be protected. We know that this means we must own that responsibility and be wise in how we handle it. We must be quick to learn and be diligent in keeping a watchful eye. We must not be self-absorbed, but instead look for ways to serve one another in obedience to this command. So help us, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.